Since it is the new year, since we're beginning a new year, I thought we'd start at the beginning of the Bible. And this year, we're going to work our way through verse by verse, right until, no, we won't do verse by verse. Uh, but for the next five weeks at least, we're going to look at some of the origin stories that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Genesis, of course, means origin or beginning, and so it's a good place to start if we're reading our Bibles. And uh, these uh, chapters 1 through 11 in particular have some very important texts, scriptural text stories that help to shape our understanding of who we are, who God is, and our relationship, not only between us and God, but us in the world and one another. And so hopefully this will be an exciting and insightful time that we spend together. Now, of course, we're not going to be able to dive into every aspect of the Genesis narrative. So I hope that this whets your appetite to explore further, to gather in small groups, to pray through this, but most importantly, to read and reflect on it and just ask God's Spirit to give you insights and understanding uh, into these very, very important verses. Because it's in these chapters that we see the beginning of creation. We see the origin of humanity. We see the origins of human community. We see the origins of family, of cities, of civilization, of sin and salvation, and a lot of other S-sounding words that we find. There's a whole lot going on in these first 11 chapters. And Samuel and I were talking before the service because I'm about to read a very large section of Scripture Imagine that in the church reading the Bible for a while. But uh, we're seeing that often we assume we know these stories, but maybe we haven't read them for a while. And sometimes our assumption about knowing these stories comes from if we grew up in Sunday school. And so we have a very uh, filtered understanding of some of these stories. And so over the next five weeks, there will be points where it might become a little uncomfortable as we now as adults... Uh, look at the stories again and begin to wrestle with them and try to understand what is the Spirit saying to us as individuals and as a congregation as we move into this new year going through some of these stories. So it all starts, of course, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 with this opening declaration, in the beginning, God. What a great way to start. It's a good way to start a new year. It's a good way to start a sermon, and it's the way we're starting the series. So, if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. And not only the entire chapter, I'm going into chapter 2, because it's a crazy morning. And, um, and the reason I'm going into chapter 2 is because I think it actually belongs with chapter 1. You know that the whole verse divisions, chapters, verses, they, it wasn't really solidified until something like 1555, and some guy on his horse decided to make uh, the chapter divisions or the verse divisions at least. And sometimes I think he got it wrong. Uh, well, this is one of them. Uh, verses uh, 1 to 3 of chapter 2 belong with Genesis 1. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Ready? Okay, good. At least one person's ready. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night, and evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made the space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land, and the water seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. Then the land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them mark off the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. Just a little throwaway line. You know, he also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let waters swarm with fish and other life. Let skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water. And every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. How many scurrying animals will we have? <laughs> then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made 
and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Amen. Wow. Uh, there's so much, even as I'm reading through, I'm thinking, oh, that's a good point. I should mention that, and that's a good point. Oh, yeah, get so excited about all these things. So hopefully we have some time to unpack a lot more of this um, as we go through. But I want to start by saying this. The great assumption in the Bible is that God exists. We realize that? That's the great assumption in the Bible, is that God exists. You can't turn to your Bible. None of you have this in your Bibles, I don't think. You don't have a preface in your Bible that says something like, five proofs of God's existence, right? You can't turn to a chapter and find 10 irrefutable facts that God exists. Instead, when we turn to Scripture, there's just this declaration, in the beginning, God. It's this fundamental assumption that starts the whole of Scripture. And it's really the foundation of our faith, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says something along the lines of this. All those who come to God must first believe that He exists. And you're like, thanks, Captain Obvious. I mean, it sounds like such an obvious statement. But it's so fundamental to our faith that if we are to gather in this place, if we are to come to God that we must first believe that he exists. So I don't go down the road too much of trying to prove God's existence. And when people come to me and say, prove God exists, I don't tend to pull out of my back pocket all of the different um, arguments for the existence of God because I'm not sure that that's the direction the Bible takes us. The Bible takes us in the direction of not proving that God exists, but giving us reason to believe. There's a difference. And it comes to a point where we have to decide, do we believe or not? Do we have faith? Do we trust this enough, this word of God enough, that we will say, yes, I believe that God is, and so I will come to him in faith. And so I do believe that there are reasons to believe, and I'm just going to mention three of them as we approach this passage and the whole of uh, Genesis 1 to 11. There are three patterns of speaking that we find in Scripture that give us reason to believe. Three kinds of words that give us reason to believe. First of all, the words of creation. That's what we're finding here. The words of, of creation as God speaks and the world comes into existence. But as the world comes into existence, then creation itself has a voice. And that's so important, and it's picked up in Old Testament Scripture, and it's picked up in New Testament Scripture. Here's a great Old Testament passage you might be familiar with. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Did you feel that as we're reading the text together in Genesis 1 today? Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All of creation is speaking something of God to us. 
That's why as we go through the forest, as we reflect on the mountains, as we sit by the lake, we, we sense something of God's presence. There is something that causes us to ponder the existence of God as we go through the natural order. It's also why I think when we see like vast destruction in the environment, that our heart should weep because that's the voice of God being dismantled, being torn apart, being ripped out of creation, right? And so we see this. Romans 1 makes it even more uh, clear. Romans 1 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So this is the power of the word of creation. Not only did God by his word create the world, but then the created order speaks to us of God's character, of God's power. Have you ever been caught in a thunderstorm? <laughs> Have you ever been caught in a, in a time when you're just overwhelmed by the power of nature around us? And sometimes I, I tend toward fear, uh, but if I allow myself, I can also reflect on the fact of God's power being displayed in all of creation. So that's the invitation of the words of creation is to give us reasons to believe in God. But there's a second set of words that are used. And the second set of words come from the prophets. Because with creation, we get to know something of God's character and his power, but we don't know anything of his will or his intent. And so the prophets come along, and in Hebrews chapter 1 it says, In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. And prophecy in Scripture is a very important aspect of understanding the revelation of God. And so prophecy comes to us as revealing God's intent and His will and His purpose. And so we also have reason to believe because of the long history of the words of the prophets. And the more that we gain familiarity and the more we gain confidence in these texts, the greater our faith will become and the more we'll have reason to believe that God is. But there's a third word that comes, not only the words of creation and the words of the prophet, but the third word is the final word, and that is the word of God. In, in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, as I mentioned, it says that in the past, God has spoken through the prophets, but now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. This is the final word. This is the final way that God reveals himself completely to us. And we see that in so many different ways. In John chapter 1 in particular, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and made us dwelling among us. And so how do we know about God? We know something of God through creation. We can reflect on the created order. We know something of God through the prophets and through the scriptures. But ultimately, we know something of God through Jesus. And whenever people wrestle with uh, a lot of Old Testament passages and a lot of the stuff that kind of disturbs us and we go, what do I do with this? I just want to run to Jesus. <laughs> Because ultimately, Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. And so all that we want to do, even in the passages that we're going to look at today and throughout the course of, of the next five weeks, I want to use this key principle that these passages are best interpreted 
by running to Jesus. <laughs> How do these stories help us to understand Jesus better? How do they direct us and point us to Jesus? So this then is God's self-revelation. It's generally through creation. It's uh, especially through the prophets, but it's very specifically through his son, through Jesus coming. And these aren't proofs. I wouldn't say they're proofs, but they are reasons for us to believe. But that last step is up to each one of us, whether we choose to believe or not. And that's what we're coming at as we approach Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1 is not the origin story of God. Um, God has no beginning. But Genesis chapter 1 is the origin story of our faith, and it's found and wrapped up in this declaration, in the beginning, God, that God exists, and then everything flows from that. So there's so much in this passage, and we could spend a lot of time uh, going through this, uh, but we won't do too much today. Instead, I want to give um, a particular angle that maybe you haven't thought of as you come to the creation narrative and as we look through it together. I also recognize that these stories can be a bit of a minefield for a preacher to step in. And I don't like minefields very much, and I tend to uh, avoid them. But I recognize that, that over the years and over many years, passages like Genesis chapter 1 have been fodder for arguments and arguments between atheists and Christians and argu arguments between um, the, the Hebrew understanding and maybe a Greek understanding and arguments even between Christians as we try to wrestle with these uh, different scriptures. I know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ that hold to a very literal understanding of the six days of creation. And I also know that there's brothers and sisters in Christ that hold to a not-so-literal understanding of the days of creation. And yet we're here together, aren't we? And there are others that are even before Darwin, like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Oregon, who they didn't hold to a literal understanding of Scripture, and yet we still lean on them as fathers of the faith, right? And so this is what we have uh, before us, and this is some of the minefield that we step through. And yet, what we have to come back to again and again is how was this story, this understanding of creation, how is it used by the New Testament writers? And when we come to that, we realize that the New Testament writers use this story to point us to Jesus. And that's my point. Whatever we want to discuss, whatever we want to explore, whatever we want to debate, as long as it leads us to Jesus, that's what I'm happy about. And so that's the attitude and approach that we're looking at. Let me just read a couple of passages before we go on to the particular point I want to make today. Passages in the New Testament that show just how much the New Testament writers tied the story of creation with Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, listen to this. Christ is the, the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He exists before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Creation drives us to Jesus, and this understanding that Jesus wasn't just born on Christmas Day. <laughs> he wasn't born on Christmas Day, but the idea that he wasn't just a baby, 
that there's something before his birth in the manger. And this is what the New Testament writers that they draw our attention to. John chapter 1 again. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the Word became flesh and made His home among us, he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is the hermeneutical principle. This is the key to understanding our stories in the Old Testament. We look at them through the lens of Jesus because that's what the New Testament writers did for us as well. So I want to focus this morning on one part of this passage that leads us to Jesus that maybe you haven't thought of before. In order to get to it, we need to look at the structure of the passage that before us. Because just as creation is beautiful, the passage that we just read and hopefully picked up on it is structured in a way that reflects that beauty. It's a beautifully structured passage, and it's very intention, intentional. A key to the structure, though, is found in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And the key is, in Hebrew, Tohu vabohu. Now, I know I'm not pronouncing that right, but I'm going to say it with confidence because you don't know how to pronounce it either. So, and I can guarantee that. So, tohu vabohu is a very important uh, structural key to understanding this passage. We've interpreted it in a number of different ways and translated it, but generally it means without form and empty. That's how we start. Without form and empty. And then the rest of the passage has to do with form and fill as we go through this time. So day one, the form that is created is light and dark. And day two, the sea and the sky. And day three, the land and the vegetation. These are all the forms that are created. But then day four corresponds with day one. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars fill the light and the dark. In day five, it corresponds with day two, because in day five, the fish and the birds fill the sea and the sky. And then in day six, the animals and the humans, they fill the land, and so day six is corresponding to day three. Do you see this wonderful connection that's made in these days, and the structure is so beautiful in the passage that it shows us the unfolding of creation. But as you read through, and if you, if you read through with me, you'll notice something else in the passage. Each day gets a little longer. It's like the work week. Do you remember working and being in the work week? And each day just felt like it was getting a little longer. If you do sort of a word count of each day in that passage, it gets longer and longer and more full. There's this kind of crescendo that builds, and it builds all the way to the end, and then God rested. There's a beautiful structure that's going on here, isn't there? And what's happening? Well, these six days of creation that are paired, one and four and two and five and three and six, there's one day that doesn't have a pair. What is that? Day seven. That's the great grand conclusion, the day that God rested. And I think of all the things we're meant to pay attention to, and there's lots in this passage, that's one that we sometimes miss. Day seven, the day that God rested. 
This day seven stands all on its own. And so this creation passage is certainly about the creation of the universe. And it's also about Sabbath. And that's something I think we desperately need to hold on to and understand as we start a new year. The day God rested, the day that God stopped working, that he ceased from his labors, is something that is highlighted as we read through this passage together. And it's that day that became to be called Sabbath, and it's that day that points us to Jesus, most importantly. It's interesting as we read through the creation narrative that the first day that Adam and Eve enjoyed was not a work day. Do you ever realize that as you're reading through? The first day, the first full day that they woke up to, it was actually a rest day. How gracious is God, you know, to invite him, to invite Adam and Eve into a day of rest first? Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us fundamentally that we are not made for work but we are made for God. I think so often in our lives, we get so tied up in our work, whether it's paid work or whether it's work taking care of our kids or whether it's volunteer work, and we wrap our identity into that work so intrinsically that when that work is removed from us, we don't know who we are anymore. And so one of the protections of Sabbath and understanding Sabbath in this passage is that God invites us, first of all, to be with him. And that we're not defined by our work, but we are defined ultimately by God. Work does not define us. It's interesting, uh, Justin Huffman uh, has this quote, and I just love it. Just as Eve was created so that man wouldn't have to live alone, the Sabbath was created so that humanity wouldn't have to live exhausted. What a wonderful gift. You know, there's lots of other, maybe not lots, but there are other creation stories that exist outside of the Bible. And some of those creation stories end with a great culmination of the gods creating a palace or some grand place. But Abraham Joshua Heschel, a Jewish writer, he points out that God of the scripture of the Bible ends up creating a palace in time, an invitation to enter into a particular time with God. And that time is called the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is much more than a day to be kept. And I don't want you to hear me saying Sabbath and think I'm advocating for a return to Saturday Sabbath observance or even to something that some people sometimes call the Christian Sabbath, which is Sunday. I don't think that's the direction that this Sabbath principle takes us. In fact, I, I want to show how uh, this priority and invitation to rest actually infuses the whole of Scripture and is important for our life right now. Because Sabbath, and this principle of Sabbath, is the origin of so many different things. It's the origin of ecology in the Old Testament. When we think about the land, even the land was to be granted a Sabbath. The farmers weren't meant to farm the land until there was no more nutrients in it. Uh, the, the land was meant to have a time of rest. It's also the foundation of justice. People that owed money, people that had debts, people that were enslaved were expected in the Sabbath year, and especially the year of Jubilee, which was seven times seven Sabbaths, they were, they were meant to be released from those burdens. There was meant to be a Sabbath of releasing those burdens. So Sabbath is at the heart of justice. Sabbath is at the heart of what we might understand of heaven, 
of what's to come in the life that's, that's next. Sabbath is absolutely essential to understanding. So many of us over this last year and last couple of years have lost loved ones. And one of the beautiful gifts of Sabbath is to think of our loved ones at rest, in peace, right? And this is what Sabbath does for us. It gives us this gift. But ultimately, this is my point. This Sabbath principle finds its complete fulfillment then in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, and I think people hearing it for the first time would have been shocked and maybe horrified. Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you Sabbath. How is that possible for a man to stand up and say, come to me, and I will give you this Sabbath gift? The very thing that God invited Adam and Eve to at the very beginning of creation, Jesus is now standing up and saying, come to me, and I will give you that rest. I uh, saw a, a meme on Facebook, and it was made into a shirt. I'm thinking of getting a mug for Samuel that says this. It says on it, I feel like I'm already tired tomorrow. <laughs> Does anybody ever feel that way? As you go through life, as you go through work, as you go through maybe the trials and the problems that we faced this last year, we already feel tired tomorrow. And, and so I think this principle that is brought to us in Genesis chapter 1, the principle of the goodness of creation and the goodness of work and God's created order is important. But the principle that's sometimes missing in our life is the principle of rest, of being able to rest in God. And yes, I am talking about physical rest. I am talking about the need to take a nap every once in a while. I am talking about taking care of our health and making sure that we get the appropriate amount of downtime. But I'm talking about something much deeper than that as well. Because I think that there's a general unrest in our souls. There's a general dissatisfaction that goes on in our characters, in our inner life. I think a lot of us are still carrying around a lot of shame and sorrow and sin that never gets resolved and causes us to not have peace. And that's not God's intent for our lives. And Sabbath reminds us of that. Jesus reminds us that we don't have to work for our salvation, that we are accepted in Christ and so we can rest in him. We're reminded through Sabbath that we don't have to strive for the approval of others, even as we're preaching, even as we're working, even as we're taking care of our children, that we're already fully accepted in Christ. Sabbath reminds us that we don't have to search endlessly for love, that we're already fully loved in Christ. And Sabbath reminds us that we don't have to sweat out our personal identity, but actually our identity is already found in Christ if we would just rest in him, if we were to rely upon him. So while Genesis 1 reveals that God exists and it shows God's hand in forming and filling the earth and the whole universe, the standout day at the end of this passage is the day of rest, that day that's ultimately found fulfilled in Jesus. So at this time of year, when some of us make resolutions, some are still in the habit of doing that, maybe this year we should resolve to find our rest in Jesus because we're going to face some stuff this year that's going to disrupt our peace, 
that's going to cause us to have unrest in our souls. And so we need to be anchored and grounded in this origin story that brings Sabbath to our hearts. Let me end with a quote, again from Justin Huffman. He says this, and, and just to declare, I love holidays, and I love planning holidays, and I am on social media. So this quote isn't anti-holiday or anti-social media, but it does draw me to what's really important. It says this, no amount of vacationing, streaming entertainment, or social media escapism will give us true rest. Running to Christ, submitting to his provision and direction is the only real and lasting Sabbath for the soul. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in faith, believing that not only do you exist, but that you love us. Thank you for that. Help us as we start this new year to rest in your love. To not worry or be anxious about what tomorrow might bring because we know it's going to bring some challenges and some complications. But Father, through prayer and through thanksgiving, to trust our souls to you. To rest in your peace, to rest in your provision. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he is the final word of who you are. Help us to trust him more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.